And each one, greet you in our Savior's precious name. Thank you for your presence this evening. And I pray as we look into God's Word together and worship, we'll be drawn closer to God. I very much appreciate the songs and the devotional that was given because it leads into the message tonight. We live in an increasingly wicked world. I don't need to tell you that. I'm sure you know that. I'm just amazed as I've thought back at what I wanted to share uh, this evening. I've, I've thought back over my lifetime, and I'm just amazed at how the world has become more wicked in my lifetime. As a young boy, divorce was becoming more rampant in the 60s, but it still was frowned upon. And it, was, it was not something that was a regular thing. And yet you know what's happening in our world today. In the 60s and the 70s, homosexuality was considered queer, weird behavior, and now it's celebrated. Now we live in a world where transgender is celebrated. Again, when I was younger, you just didn't hear about it. Our world is becoming extremely wicked. When I consider that, and I consider that the Christian is the light of the world, the distinction between the world and the Christian should be getting further and further apart. The light of the Christian should be shining more bright, not that we're necessarily uh, pushing it more brightly, but you take a candle in a caverns where you can't see your, your hand in front of your face without a light, and a, a candle illuminates so much. You take a candle outside on a real bright moonlit evening and it doesn't do much. Is the light of our lives illuminating this wicked world as God would have it illuminate? That's the question I want you to consider. The title of the message is A Godly View of Sin. And when I made the title, I made sure I put in the word godly because I want us to consider tonight God's view of sin so that we understand correctly what sin is and how God views it. I contend when we compromise our view of God, we also compromise our fear of God and we compromise our, fear, our view of sin. And so that's the burden of the message this evening. I'm, I want us to think a little bit as we think about our own lives. Is my life shining a light in this world that's illuminating more because of the world's wickedness or am I becoming acculturated into that wickedness and don't quite realize what it's doing to me? I want to give you two examples of that because I think at times it's easy for us to become acculturated and not realize what the wickedness of the world's doing. This would have to be something that you that are my age and older would remember. The younger ones don't remember this. But probably about 45 years ago, Coors proposed building the plant in Elkton that they have now. And at the time, it wasn't even going to be a brewery. They were going to bring beer in from Colorado on refrigerated rail cars and just package it at Elkton. I don't know how many of you remember, but there was a public outcry about Coors building that plant in Elkton. A public outcry from the community, not from the church. There was public meeting after public meeting where that was talked about and hashed because people of this valley didn't want cores in the valley. Now we have microbreweries on about every other street corner. We have vineyards and, and um, 
wineries all over the valley. And when I talk to younger people in our circles, I find less and less of a conviction for a life of absence. Do you see what's happening? The world is pressing in on us and we don't realize what's happening. The second example I wanna give, American Christianity preaches a gospel of grace, 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 and it's, it inundates us. And I believe it affects how we view the, the pure, holy life that God wants us to live. And we'll look at that a little bit more as we get into the message. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14. I want to look first this evening at God's view of sin when Satan fell. We have to look at Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Revelation to get the, first pic to get the whole picture of Satan's fall. I just want to look at Isaiah and I'm going to talk a little bit about what some of the other passages say. Isaiah 14, I want to start reading at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I hope you recognize this is what Satan was saying in his heart before he, held, before he fell in heaven. Verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Ezekiel says that uh, Lucifer, Satan, was the anointed cherub. Ezekiel gives a, a big description about the glory that God had given to, to Satan. Satan was a created being, just as you and I are created. And God had created him with much glory, much splendor. He had a very high position, a position of influence in heaven. And yet he wasn't satisfied. He wanted more. Pride lifted his heart, and he wanted to be above God. He wasn't satisfied to be where God had put him. And so he and a third of the angels rebelled against God, and the rebellion didn't, uh, didn't work, and God threw them out of heaven. Scripture tells us that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not prepared for mankind. It was prepared for Satan. When God threw Satan out of heaven, he also sealed his fate. And his fate was he and the angels that, that sinned with him were doomed to hell for all eternity. That was the sentence that Satan's, Satan had for his, rebe his rebellion. Satan's sin and the angel's sin that sinned with him could no longer be in the presence of God. So he threw him out of heaven. Now let's go to Genesis 3 and look at the fall of man. If we had a blackboard here and we'd write this of Satan, the glory that God gave him as a created being, and we would write down man in another column, the glory that God gave to mankind, and the sin of Satan and the sin of man, you would see that it's a very similar situation. 
Adam and Eve were created beings. You know that. I don't have to go through the verses to show you that. They were created beings. God created them, and he said when he was done, it was very good. Adam and Eve were even created in the image of God. And so there was tremendous glory and tremendous splendor that God put into this other created being that he created, which was Adam and Eve. Now we come to chapter 3. Let's read the first several verses. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now notice verse 5. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. You notice in verse 5, Satan appealed to the woman's desire to be lifted up, to be like the gods, to know something she didn't know, the difference between good and evil. She as well had a desire to be lifted up. She wasn't content with the position that God had given her. And her and Adam both ate of this forbidden fruit, and immediately something happened and something changed. Now, what I want to get from this as well is their sin separated them from God. Before this sin, Adam and Eve were able to commune with God. They walked with him in the cool of the day and commune the garden. And after this, that sin separated them from God. I've asked myself many times as I've looked at this story, why didn't God deal with man the same as he dealt with Satan? And I don't have the answer to that because their sins were so similar. But yet, God, in his love and his mercy to mankind, promised a Savior. And when I read in Ephesians 2 where it says, By saved, this is what I think about. The grace of God to mankind was great. It was tremendous. Because man didn't deserve salvation any more than, than what Satan did. But God, in his love and mercy to mankind, said he would send a savior. But their sin had to be separated from God. Now, turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 16. We're moving forward a number of years, hundreds of years. Now we have the children of Israel. And something happened in the children of Israel that it was a rebellion that God dealt with, and he dealt with very forcefully. It's a story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And I want to read this chapter. I want you to think about this chapter, and I want, want us to get the picture of what's happening here and the seriousness of, of it as it relates to Moses and Aaron, the leadership that God had set up over the children of Israel. Numbers chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, 
and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. I want to stop at verse 2 and make just a couple comments. If I've looked at the genealogy correctly, Korah was the first cousin of Moses and Aaron. This was family. And that gets close when family starts to oppose what's happening. Then you notice in verse 2, men took 250 men of renown. They were called princes. The uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and these men were men that were involved in the work of the tabernacle. They weren't the priest. They were involved in the work of the tabernacle. So they were men that were leaders. They were men that had standing in the congregation. And they rose up against Moses and Aaron. This wasn't a small rebellion. This was a major thing that was happening in the children of Israel. Now let's read further. Verse 3. <clears throat> and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face, and he spake unto Kor and to all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen we cause to come near unto him. This do. Take you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, ye sons of Levi, Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee. And seek ye the priesthood also? For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord? And what is Aaron that you murmur against him. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and said, which said, we will not come up. It is, is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince among us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. That's quite an insult that they just said to Moses. They were accusing him of taking them out of a land that flowed with milk. And then they were saying, you promised us to bring into this other land, you haven't done it. And you all are Bible scholars enough to know why that didn't happen. It's because the children of Israel sinned. It wasn't Moses' fault. Actually, if you go to Psalm 106, it tells us that they were jealous of Aaron. And that's what, that's what inspired this. Let's read further. Verse 15. 
And Moses was very wroth and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they, and Aaron Tamar. And take every man his censer, and put incense in them, and bring forward every man his censer, two hundred and fifty censers, thou also and Aaron, each of you his censer. And they took every man his censer, and put fire in them, and laid incense thereon, and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. <clears throat> and Korah gathered all the congregation against them under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourself from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall win and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? Do you see what's happening in these verses? God was upset enough that he was going to destroy the whole congregation of the people, and yet Moses and Aaron interceded with them. Verse 23, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the, the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives, and their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own hand, mine own mind, excuse me. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. As he has made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow up us, swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord, and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Tremendous judgment of God on this sin. Tremendous judgment. I, I can't hardly fathom being there and witnessing this where the earth opens up and swallows these men, their families, and all their possessions, and then fire of the Lord coming out and destroying these other 250 men. You would have thought it had changed the hearts of these people. But let's read on because it didn't. Verse 36, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning, and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. The censers of these sinners, 
against their own souls. Let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar. For they offer them before the Lord, therefore they are hallowed. They shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eleazar the priest took the brazen censers, wherewith they that were burnt had offered, and they, they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar, to be a memorial to the children of Israel, that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah and as his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. But notice what happened the next day. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass, when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people, and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700. Beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses, under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. I was impressed as I studied this twice, were it not for Moses and Aaron, the people would have been wiped out. This sin was a sin that flew in the face of God's holiness, and he decided to bring judgment on it. But twice, Moses and Aaron interceded for the people. The second time, there was 14,700 people died. Tremendous judgment of God for the sin of these people. If you go through the Old Testament, there's a number of other examples of God bringing judgment on sin. But I had to think, the Old Testament from the time of creation to Christ is 4,000 years. So there's really not many instances like this. There were instances where God brought judgment. We could think about the children of Israel going into captivity for their sin. That lasted for 70 years, and they couldn't reverse it. They had to go through the... We have the story of David sinning and the prophet coming to him saying, telling him the, the sword wouldn't leave his family for the rest of his life, and it didn't. Uh, and there are other examples as well where God brought judgment because of sin. Now let's go to the New Testament because the, the question has to be asked, has God changed? Or does God view sin the same way in the New Testament as he did in the Old I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're looking at a godly view of sin, and I want us to get a picture that God hates sin. This, the second song Joel uh, led 
had the phrase, uh, something to effect, I want my heart to be pure. God, do we understand what God wants for his people? He wants his people to be holy. We come to Acts 5. We have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's read this, starting in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession <clears throat> and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part of the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have the spear of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in and found her dead, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Are we living in a time of grace? Are we living in a time that God cares deeply about sin? This was not a Hutterite community. Peter told Ananias, while it was yours, you had it within your power, you could have done whatever you wanted to do. But for whatever reason, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look good to other people. And they wanted people to think that they had given the whole price to the church when they hadn't, they lied. And God brought judgment. Now I tried to think, and I couldn't, I could think of one other time in the New Testament, and that was in Acts 12, where God brought immediate judgment. And maybe somebody else can think of another time that I can't think of. But in Acts 12, Herod stood up to deliver a speech. And when he was done, the people said, gave him a lot of glory and said it was the voice of, of a God rather than a man. And Herod didn't give God credit. And Acts 12 says, verse 23, Immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. I don't know, maybe somebody can think of an example in the New Testament beside these two. Those two were the only two I could think of. But God cares about sin. God is a holy God, and he wants his people to be holy. Now you say, well, there was only two cases in the New Testament, but from Matthew to Revelation is less than 100 years, and God brought judgment twice. There were other times that he overlooked sin, didn't bring immediate judgment. But God is a God that hates sin, and he wants his people to be holy. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to look at a little bit of God's desire for his people. 
I want to look at some verses here, but I want you to listen as I read a couple verses from the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament, God had chosen Abraham to be the father of his people. Through Abraham, then, we have the Jewish line coming. The Jewish people went into Egypt. They were there for around 400 years, and then God brought them out. Brought them out with a mighty hand. They saw the, the workings of God as he brought them out of Egypt. Then as he led them away from Egypt, they came face to face the Red Sea. I don't know if, how many of you have ever looked up uh, to see a picture of the Red Sea, but it's a formidable body of water. It's an amazing body of water. It's no way a group of a million people get across that water. And where God led them was a cliff on both sides. It was a narrow trail that led to the Red Sea. So they had the Red Sea in front of them, cliffs on both sides, and Pharaoh's army behind them. No way to be delivered. Yet God worked a powerful miracle, and they saw it. The Red Sea parted. They went across some dry land, and, and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. After that happened, God led the children of Israel to Mount Sinai. And he told them, he said, I'm, this is in my words, he said, I'm looking for a people that are willing to serve me and be faithful to me. And he said, if you'll be that people, I'll bless you. I'll be with you. I'll take care of you. This is what he told to them. I want you to get the words that he used for them. And then I want, to see, I want you to see the same words in the New Testament. This is what he said in Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you'll obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now get this last verse. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want you to be a holy nation. I want you to be a people that are set apart for me. I want you to be a people that show the world what I can do in people's lives if they serve me. And they raised their hands and, in essence, said, we'll do it. But you know they didn't do it. Now let's go to 1 Peter 2. God's calling us to the same thing. God is still looking for people that will commit themselves to him, to live for him and do it his way. And he says, when you'll be that people, I'll bless you, and I will take care of you, and I'll be your God. Let's start reading verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 9, the last part of that verse. 
He has delivered us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just as he delivered Israel out of Egypt, and they had no power of their own to come out, it took a mighty power to bring them out. Just as they were delivered, we've been delivered. And brothers and sisters, we have no more power to get out of darkness than what they did out of Egypt. It's only because God has made it possible for us to be his sons and daughters that we can be delivered out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's calling those people to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation, to be a peculiar people. He's still looking for a people to be set apart to him so that they can show the world what it's like if a people really serve him. We, we live in a work, wicked world that has no concept of what Christianity is. And I see it more and more as I relate to the Boys and Boys Club. I'm just amazed at their lack of knowledge of God. Um, time before last, Ethan told them the story of Joseph, and they didn't, had never heard of Joseph. Blew me away. I had no idea they didn't know that story. Do we understand the wickedness of our world? Are we showing forth God's praise? So that the world looks at us, and whether they like it or not, they have to admit that they really are a people that are living for God. That's what God's looking for. You're at 1 Peter 2. Go back to 1 Peter 1. First Peter 1, starting at verse 13. Wherefore... Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that's to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, or in every area of your life, because it's written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now this, this wording in, in 1 Peter 1 comes directly from Leviticus 11.45. Again, a, a call of God for the children of Israel to be a holy people. And here we come to the New Testament, and His call for us is to be holy as well. I want to read two verses for you. 1 Corinthians 15.34, Paul was talking to Chris, the Corinthian people about the resurrection. And he says this. This is just a part of the verse, not the whole verse. He says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Then we go to 1 John 2, verse 1. And John says, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. Does God give a command that he doesn't give the power for us to live? The command is that we don't sin. That we live holy lives. Is that what marks my life, and is that what marks your life? Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, I'm just... I'm just amazed as I look at how John wrote and some of the things he said. 
Verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I think John's overwhelmed with the love of God. He uses a word that's translated manner that could have been translated strange. Behold what strange love God has. You see, when you think about it again, back to the fall of Satan and the fall of Adam and Eve, why did God decide to love us? We didn't deserve it. Why did God decide to extend grace to people? They deserve the same fate that Satan got. But God not only said, I'm going to forgive. When he said that, he could have said, I'll forgive, but you have to be a servant in my kingdom for the rest of eternity. And that would have been a good deal. But no, he said, you can be my sons and daughters. That's what John's saying here. He said, do you understand the love of God? Do you understand the love of God for us, the people? God not only allowed us to be forgiven, but when we come to him through Christ, we are changed from slaves of darkness to sons of light. And John says that's a strange love. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. I want to look at verse 8 first, the last part of that verse. That verse. John makes it clear, and this doctrine is throughout the New Testament, Jesus' death and resurrection destroyed the power of the devil in our lives. God has made it possible that you and I, as Sons of His and daughters of His in the New Testament era have the power to live above sin and live victorious. Romans 8 makes it clear that the righteousness that God wanted in the Old Testament that they couldn't keep because they didn't have the power, we now can keep because we have power. That's clear in the New Testament. And John makes it clear. He says this, the last part of verse 8, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Then he goes on to talk about 
the difference between the Christian and the unbeliever in the world. The difference is your life and mine. And if you and I are continuing to live in sin, he uses, uh, Philip brought it out his message this morning, when you see ETH in the King James Version, most times it's talking about something that's continuing on. If someone is continuing to live a life of sin after they've experienced the cleansing of the Holy Spirit and the new birth through Christ, he's saying they are not a Christian if they're continuing to live in sin. It's almost as if he's saying in verse 9, uh, it's, it's almost a, a duh. I mean, if you're born of God, you're not going to continue to sin unless you're born of the devil. He makes it very clear. We have a responsibility to live a holy life if we've experienced a new birth. Lastly in the sermon this evening, I want to look at the, the subject of willful sin. Willful sin is something that I've struggled with for many years to understand what Scripture teaches and how to preach about it. And if you've, you've heard me probably at times talk about it, and I've struggled to know sometimes what to say about it. I'd like to show, share with you what I've learned, and hopefully it's correct. If it's incorrect, I hope you, uh, you help me afterwards. But there's three passages in the New Testament that talk about willful sin. And all three come down very hard on a sin where if we are born-again people and purposely go into sin, it has some very harsh words for us. Let's look at these three passages. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the spirit of grace or insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't know if you're aware or not, but in the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice for willful sins. The penalty was taken out and stoned. There was no sacrifice. In the Old Testament, willful sins were called presumptuous sins. And the psalmist said this in Psalm 1913, 
Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. I think the psalmist is recognizing something that I think we need to recognize as we look at this subject. When we take or make the decision to go into willful sin, we're opening our heart to be hardened. And the psalmist recognizes that we open ourselves for that sin to have dominion over us. And I think we need to understand that. This passage here in Hebrews 10 brings out that it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of living God. It makes it clear that God's going to bring judgment for that sin. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the world to come, if they fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified of themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. As I looked at these verses in Hebrews 6, I had to think, how would a person who believes in eternal security deal with these verses? It makes it clear the person has came to know the Lord. They've even experienced the Holy Spirit. So they were saved. But it recognized they can fall away. I want you to notice verse 6. If you thought about it in verse in chapter 10 where we read, it said that he brings shame or he insults the spirit when we do that and we fall into sin in that way. And here in verse 6 it says, we put him to an open shame. Again, our lives are to be showing the world that Christ has made a difference. And when we as Christians fall back into willful sin, we're rubbing the face of God in the dirt to the world. Now let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2 for the third passage. First Peter chapter 2, starting verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Three passages that make it clear it's a very dangerous thing as a Christian who has experienced light to fall back into sin again. Again, this is something I've struggled with for years because as I look back on my life, I know I was somebody that fell back into willful sin. I just thought God owed it to me. I mean, Scripture says if, if I confess my sins, He'll forgive. So I had the idea that God owed it to me. And I had to come to God in brokenness because I realized I was lost. 
I thought I was saved and I was lost because of sin I was allowing in my life. And I know God forgave me. I think we need to understand, though, when as Christians we do this, we are opening our hearts to be hardened that makes it very difficult for us to come back. I find two examples in the Old Testament that give me much hope for people that fall into willful sin. The one is King David and the other is King Manasseh. King David not only committed sin with Bathsheba, but he, but he killed her husband in murder. And yet God forgave him because he came in brokenness. The other was King Manasseh. King Manasseh, it says, filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He was a tremendously wicked man. But yet when he came to God in brokenness, and I'm just blessed at the mercy and the love of our Heavenly Father. He does readily forgive when people in brokenness come to him. But I want to challenge us, brothers and sisters, don't presume upon the grace of God and think that we can just open our lives up to sin and God's, God owes it to us to forgive. That's presumption. And God doesn't owe us to forgive. We come in brokenness and receive forgiveness or we come as King Saul in pride and God doesn't forgive. And we need to understand that. In closing, I want to read a couple verses in four. It's God's testimony about himself. I want you to notice in this testimony two things. One, his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. We have a God that's forgiving. A God that reaches out to mankind and wants to forgive. But he's also a God that has promised judgment. And in these verses, he says, I won't forget to the third and the fourth generation. I will, I will bring judgment. Exodus 34, starting verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by no means, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. I am so thankful for the love and the mercy of my Heavenly Father. But he also declares that he will not let sin go unpunished. May we be a people that walks before God in holiness. The Lord bless you.